This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven. Robbery homicides take you. Give me all you got! Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's L.A. crime opus, Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and joining me a full 109 episodes after his last appearance on the show, a friend of mine, you would have heard us talk about rage reversing and being cool enough not to actually greet someone when they ring you on the phone. He's heard on ABC. He writes for publications such as Birth Movies Death, SBS, 10 Daily, The Guardian, The Monthly, Vice. Uh, and we started a little website together called Graffiti with Punctuation now like seven or eight years ago. Jesus H. Crikey. The man himself, Mr. Cam Williams. Welcome back to One Eight Minute, my friend. How are you? I'm good now, Blake. Uh, you know, uh, uh, I hope you're paying attention while I'm talking, but uh, what I want is I want a cream cheese bagel, I want a Coca-Cola, I want a... I'm just in this real power position right now where I expect people to listen as soon as I start talking as if I'm picking up a phone <laughs> no and commanding respect. <laughs> Not a greeting. <laughs> tell me, Albert, tell me Albert Torino called back, but you got to have that. you got to do that. And look, you're in a position oh. of power because right now you've just, you know, you've um, seen Justine's power play. We're here at the 133rd minute. You've seen Justine, the little Vincent with Ralph. You're seeing the tail end of their devastating sort of final fight in this movie. Um, yeah, you're right here, man. We're right in the home stretch. Yeah, we're, this is Endgame. That's the thing I kept whispering to myself watching this minute. <laughs> I was like, I kept saying, Endgame. I was like, this is all, this is, you know, because... Um, I've me- I've mentioned this before, but I- I'm just so in awe of your ability to pick this podcast to do about one of the longest films. <laughs> um, and it, you know, when you really do break it down per minute, um, this marathon that the fact that we're now at this point in the film where things are really, you know, things have happened and escalated, and you know, now we're breaking it all down in terms of how everyone's getting out. Um, it kind of makes puts it all in perspective and just makes you more in awe of the ability to kind of set everything up. And then now, you know, this deep into this saga, it's now, oh, this is how everyone is getting out and this is how all these relationships are ending and things are breaking down. Um, yeah, it, it, you know, even, you know, Pacino with the television, I was just like, this is such – we're just – we've spent so much time with this character now that him walking out with that TV just makes sense. It's, you just you totally agree with that decision. It's a heartbreaking thing. It's funny, like, you know, it's so funny that, that, like, that's the one thing that he temporarily even gives the slightest shit about. It's not even his clothes. He just doesn't yep. care. He's just like, you can't take my... And this is the tragedy of this whole movie, I think. Like, it just escalates. And I think you're right. Like, this is the fallout of all of the, all of the middle of the heist and all these relationships falling down and the end game is here. But, like, the desperation and tragedy of a character that he's like, this is my one little oasis that I visit every night after my really horrible, shitty day because my profession that both drives me and inspires me also, like, torments me. 
and this guy's watching my TV is way more perverse than you sleeping with him. Like, it's just so sad. <laughs> yeah. It's really sad. Yeah, it is. So, and even looking back to the previous the previous minutes that we did, there was a very similar scene across minutes 23 and 24 that we did previously mm. where there was this kind of conversation going on. And I think uh, on the, on the, those the episodes that we did, you and I discussed kind of like what possessions he would have brought to that house with him yes. um, as, a, as a cop in his position um, because he constantly is referencing throughout the film – um, you know, the fact that he's living in this, this crazy designed house. Dead that tech, is not- postmodern bullshit house. Yep. That exact thing. <laughs> which, which is great. Which like throughout this film, whenever you see the home, the home life, um, of Hannah, I, I, I always just think about like what, what possessions does he own? What, like, does he have like two one. suits? Like his one, suits. just like- he's, he's got the TV yeah. honestly and clothes and like, that, like and, a, and a, and a glorious, and a glorious um, gold chain. Just before we dive into this minute, now, folks who are listening to this, we're recording it a little earlier than you guys are going to be hearing it. You're going to be hearing um, this about the 27th of March um, uh, in, in in Aussie time, um, uh, so around then um, internationally. And I saw a great tweet that I wanted to reference to you because we were talking about his only possessions um, mm. that he'll be having. Now, I saw... <laughs> I saw someone uh, talking about. um, uh, I saw someone talking about Vincent, um, Vincent Hanna, um, and uh, I just want to get her name: Gabriella Paella. It's at G M P A I E W L A, and she goes, "I can't remember if there's a scene at the beginning of Heat where Al Pacino is kissing really gross and weird, or if it's falsely implanted on my memory. But either way, I think about it all the time. And in that moment, at the beginning of this movie, the only other thing I can think of is his possessions, his clothes, his clothes, his television, and just the gold chain that's around his neck is literally everything that Vincent Hanna owns in this house. He does not own another thing going on." Yeah, he doesn't. And I assume that everything else is just work issue. So he's probably like, you know, the phone he has, his gun, mm-hmm. like most of the, the his possessions he probably gets from work, which mm-hmm. makes me think that like, you know, it just shows you that everything in his life is in debt to his chosen profession, which at some point you have to think that he was like, well, if I become a cop, I've got an excuse to wear the same suit all the time. <laughs> no ever question that decision. Uh, so, like, maybe, yeah, his his profession by is by choice purely out of necessity, and that no one will ever question um, your general well being <laughs> uh, and, and probably living in squalor you know, because you're wearing the same suit all the time and, you, and you're kind of getting around eating crappy food and drinking a lot. Um, maybe, you know, maybe by choice that that was a decision he made in the very beginning that he would become a cop and he would live this kind of, uh, small lifestyle. You know, he, he's, it's very much that, you know, that I think, every, you've, I think you've drawn the great, I think you've drawn the great parallel that we haven't really talked about in the, and we haven't even started this minute. So what we're going to do, we're going to pause. I've got a thought for you, Mr. Cam Williams, before we get in, mm. before we get into this. Um, um, but let's let's dive into this minute right now. 133rd minute, if you guys are watching on the original theatrical cut of um, um, the Warner Brothers edition of the Heat Blu-ray, um, you're at exactly 2 hours and 12 minutes. 
that is the 133rd minute. Um, it's at the tail end of the Ralph um, uh, Ralph scene with Justine and Vincent sort of uh, at that coda and then um, begins a, a wonderful little um, exchange between um, De Niro's Neil and Nate, John Voigt. So Cam and I are going to quickly watch it together. Then we're going to come back and we can dive into, I think, some more great points that Cam brings up around. Just we've talked so many times on this podcast about Neil being this Spartan guy who wears exactly the same suit who only has two coffee mugs in his entire house, doesn't appear to have any kind of worldly possessions. And that's kind of that overemphasized, you know, in his life because he doesn't, you know, Edie doesn't interact with his space. But here with Vincent, we get distracted by the sort of accoutrement of like Justine's previous life and not realize it until exactly what you start saying now. It's like when you start seeing him pack up in this scene, he's holding one thing, the one thing that he likes, which is his TV, his little escape. But let's check out this minute and then we'll come back and we'll deep dive into this bad boy. Passports, driver's checks, plastic. The plane, charter terminal, LAX, hangar 17. Call it as a 1011 Sierra. Hushes down. All's for you. Five minutes, then splits. The plane will stand an FAA check. File flight plan that works. And was Chris? He's gone. What? Said he's going on his own. Went to look for Charlene. Didn't you bring him here? Yeah, I brought him here. What happened? It's a free country, brother. Check in with me. Nine. Everything's still cool. One of those great minutes where it ends seemingly perfectly, like we just planned it to end exactly where it did. It meant to be. It's almost as if Michael Mann made this film thinking, one day I reckon someone's going to break this down <laughs> minute by minute. This is my masterpiece. Oh, man. Uh, if, if it, you know, I wouldn't put it past him to be that meticulous to know that, you know, to sort of preempt and plan people's attention spans a minute at a time. Um, but, no, this, um, this is a great little scene. Vincent walking out the coda, like just I, I love when you catch a coda of a scene like we just saw at the beginning. You just see Vincent kind of like in disarray, and you see Justine sort of purposeful or sort of stoic with like I I had to set fire to this thing the only way that I could get your attention, and here we are. This is it, and then we get to Neil and Nate, this great fraternal relationship, standing right here on these steps and uh, at the front of the, oh sorry, at the back of his bar, and another like, rage acceleration behind this uh, thing that scared someone instead of uh, instead of uh, Christian Hellas. It's uh, it's just I'm random. Yeah, that made me think, is there another heat going on at a different pace in the background of this film? And so we're seeing, uh, you know, that scene, that that, that rage accelerate, um, which is, you know, a very masculine thing, you know, when you're angry in traffic, it's like, oh, I'm just going to uh, get around these people by rage accelerating around them to let them know how much they've annoyed me, um, which kind of in this scene is very much used to kind of find that tension and, and, make, and make you feel like these characters are so on edge that like even just like someone – you know, rage accelerating in the background makes them think that something's about to happen. Um, just yeah. like a really nice little touch in that scene that, um, you know, it's only, yeah, it's only a small bit in the film, but, you know, once you're kind of thinking about everything, the end game again, thinking about how everything's kind of falling apart and, you know, who's going to get out and who's not, 
you know, yeah, the, these characters are so on edge that even just little things happening in the background are like setting them off and, and they're reacting accordingly. Yeah, I, I like that little I like that little flurry. Some people have had the theory in previous episodes of the show that like they're like, is that Vincent? Like is Justine's house near Nate's bar? And it's not Vincent. Oh, yeah. It's not Vincent. I had it very aptly pointed out by a, a, a Heat fan. Thank you so much again, guys. I'm just going to quickly jump into it right in the middle of the show, which is like mail at oneheminute.com and, uh, and Twitter at Blake is Batman because a couple of people, when we floated the theory that that might very well be Vincent, they're like, we're quick to point out, this is car experts and I'm not a car guy. They're like, no, 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 he drives a different car to that. They're just like, no, it's a different mm. car. And if Michael, Michael Mann knows what car Vincent drives, so... You know, if if it was that little, I'm um, rage reversing or rage, you know, streaming past Nate's thing, um, uh, you know, could could be that. But then the other theory is maybe it's Ralph mm. getting, the, getting the hell out of Justine's place. Like, oh, <laughs> I see, her. I just have been threatened and um. And- well, in the heat, well, well, in the in the world of heat, you have to assume that everyone is is on the run or like you know, because the heat is constantly coming for you, so you can never. Like, even if you're just going out to get milk, like, you're going to be, like, speeding <laughs> off uh, because you because time is precious and you've kind of got to you've got to constantly stay on the move. So I just assume that in this world, everyone is constantly just, like, driving really fast everywhere, <laughs> um, probably talking on Maybe. their phone. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of those things. But um, I have to say, John Voigt. Yes. A lot, I did a lot of John Voigt research. I did an... A crazy amount of research on John Voight just for this minute because watching this scene, it really did remind me where John Voight's career was at when he did Heat. And I looked through his kind of IMDb profile and just kind of trying to figure out what he was actually doing at the time. But there, was, there was, wasn't a lot of stuff prior to Heat that I could really um, kind of pin down and say, oh, yeah, that was a great John Voight performance. But then you look at him post Heat. He's in everything. He's in. He does Mission Impossible straight after Heat, which makes me think, you know, how much of a resurgence this was for him, and how much of a big deal, I guess, at the time it would have been. Not only to see, you know, we've, t- we've talked about this previously about how, you know, the film was very much promoted as, you know, the Pacino, De Niro together film. Yes. Um, but you know, even just the appearance of, you know, like a kind of like a Hollywood legend like John Voight who kind of seemed to have been in the woods a little bit prior to this. Um, I think you're forgetting. Yeah, it, I know I know you want to say this so much, but what, what was the thing that he did in 1994 playing himself that we're both absolutely unbelievable fans of that possibly kicked off his resurgence in, yeah, yeah. in the mind? So, <laughs> so my theory is that the, the Voight um, explosion that happened in the 90s that kind of began a little bit with heat, but prior to that, I think his appearance on Seinfeld in the episode where George buys a car and thinks that it's John Voight's car. Amazing. um, Which then leads to (laughs) an incredible cameo where John Voight bites Kramer on the arm. Um, That, yeah, that was probably the most significant. That's probably how I learned who John Voight was through that (laughs) episode. Um, Because I wouldn't, like, like at the time that came out, I wouldn't have seen any of his previous films at all. Um, mm. unless someone had told me and also being quite young at the time. So in the nineties, you know, John Voight was, he was, he was the guy from Seinfeld and the guy from heat. Yes. Um, and so then and you like would you then just, back I, I love, you know, I love a deep dive on an actor's 
IMDb profile for this movie, but you just have a look at it like 1969 Midnight Cowboy, 70 Catch-22, 72 Deliverance, holy shit, like 79 The Champ. That's probably like, it's probably his top four, five movies ever, like all in, all in that time. And, and you're totally right. There's a huge sidestep um, in his career. He does a couple of TV movies and things like that, TV miniseries. And then um, Heat comes around and it's funny, like um, the story goes that John Voight always said to Michael Mann, and and I think we're probably going to dive into it, but he always said to Michael Mann that when he was reading this on the page, he's like, I don't know why you want me for this. He goes, you know, knowing your style, you just pick, you know, instead of picking an actor that does this role, you pick the guy who is this in real life. You, you know, you end up picking someone who was a crook in real life to play this part because it's not a huge part. It's an important part, but it's not a huge part of the movie. And Michael Mann said something which I think is great. And he's like, but yeah, well, then we'd never get to work together. Mm. And so it's just such yeah, a nice, it. such a nice little. Oh well, that kick started, and then you're right. He hits Mission Impossible, does the incredible, some would call incredible or insane Anaconda, um, an equally insane U-turn. Um, then he's in Enemy of the State, Rainmaker, Varsity Blues, a lot of strong yeah, nineties content, a lot of strong nineties content in there. And also, there is something there is like like watching. The changing of the baton in the four by one hundred relay at the Olympic Games. There's something <laughs> incredible about John Voigt going from Michael Mann to Brian De Palma, <laughs> yes. from Heat to Mission Impossible. <laughs> yes. In terms of you know your dream, your dream transition between directors and actors, kind of making a resurgence in Hollywood. Um, that that is or that is so good uh, for especially you know for Voigt's career but the fact that he kind of reemerges in heat and then becomes quite prominent in Mission Impossible and then beyond um and then and then even now he's kind of in the woods again because he kind of says a lot of crazy things and <laughs> yes. doing a lot of strange strange things and but which which we must not get into because you know it's a, it's a kind of a, a trashy digression but um that, that's what stands out for me the most here, and it's and it's not stunt casting at all. It, it like you said, it very much was an excuse for man to get him in the film and you know play that role of the fence, which now we know in so many movies is just kind of that 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 performance that it, that people kind of do in their sleep, where they're kind of just doing these huge info dumps and they're they're kind of explaining yeah. things and they're setting up the plot. Uh, you know, whereas I think in this minute. You really get to see um, that you know Voight not only brings a lot to a really small role, but that that incredible line where he says it's a free country um, just shows you that like even you know th- a scene like this could have easily ended up on the cutting room floor um, because it is so full of kind of exposition. But man makes it matter, and you know he throws in that that accelerating car to put you on edge, and then he's kind of you know he's doing the info dump, and then he's kind of giving you important information. I think also to De Niro in this scene, you actually he has this he has these really great reactions in this scene where he is actually he's surprised by what he's hearing. Yeah, um, it's I think you you nail that the importance of the scene is the is what John Voight brings to it, and the importance of the character is what he brings to it is because. The relationship and the dynamic between these two, the power dynamic is much, 
you know, a couple of times we've talked about it being like fraternal or like brothers, like an older and younger brother relationship because he heeds Nate's advice probably more than anyone and he'll listen to Nate's advice. And there's not, there's not the same balance of power that you see in a lot of the choices and, 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 um, in a lot of the choices and a lot of the interpersonal relationships that are in this movie, there's usually, you know, even happens with Vincent. There's like dominant people and then there's people who are hierarchically reporting to him and then there's where he's contending for power in different scenes in his own personal relationship. And in every single Nate scene, um, albeit except the one that you don't really see them together, which is a phone call um, in the upcoming tunnel scene, like he's listening and heeding Nate's advice to a point. He's hearing him. Sometimes he doesn't let it cut through or let it like penetrate what his what his purpose is. Um, but in this scene, like I think you're so right. Like that, it's a free country line, is like one for the ages because it just levels Neil. Like he stops. There's genuine emotion, genuine care, genuine concern. Like what? Like he left. Like I'm trying to get this guy out of here, and. And also for Neil, like his effectiveness of delivering that news to Chris while he's lying down um, on that table, like completely looking like shit in Jeremy Piven's dodgy doctor's office um, Mm. of like, think about that. Like, think about whether Charlene is really your out. Like he, he he was immovable. And so there's this kind of like pain and respect and also respect for Nate because if he wants to go, he's got to go. I'm not going to make him stay. I don't control him. It's yeah. free country, brother. Like this is this is it is what it is, and it's like that's maybe an extra few years of being experienced in the world when Nate's a bit more like sage wisdom. Like this is where like Nate's most Obi Wan Kenobi moment. Like he just dropped. Like Neil mm-hmm. is like the grumpy Luke Skywalker. Like you know he's just like no, it's a free country, bro. He can do whatever he wants. Yeah, exactly. And and something that um, surprised me looking into this was I did not realize that John Voight's character was based on a real guy um, named Eddie Bunker who apparently wrote like a seminal book that Michael Mann referenced. And, you know, I don't know how much of this is true. Um, So Michael Mann has to come on this podcast to clarify (laughs) it. But apparently Bunker wrote a book um, called No Beast So Fierce that apparently was like mandatory, mandatory reading on the set of Heat for anyone that was kind of participating. And apparently he also was he's credited as a technical consultant on the film and and I didn't dive too deeply into who Bunker was but apparently he was like a career criminal um who kind of had a lot of experience um you know in kind of the world that man was trying to replicate in heat in terms of the relationship between crooks and fixes and fences and all of these all, even that terminology like something that you know I'm I I had no idea about um, but kind of really capturing the authenticity of this world and how people interact with each other if they're on the wrong side of the law. So um, I'm very keen to kind of uh, to to look up more about this and even read the book. Oh, the book is excellent. The book is excellent. You're so right. Um, and how much people, um, how much people ever read the book or like dived into it? But like uh, apparently it was man's like required reading for all of the crooks. So the De Niro, mm. Kilmer, Sizemore, Kevin Gage, and Haysbert, um, and working around, you know, and um, and Bunker working with the guys on Heat, like as their technical advisor, um, and and gang life just in general. Um, some really great, like I don't know if it's dodgy IMDb trivia. Um, so firstly, cool trivia, and for everyone to know, is like Eddie Bunker is in Reservoir Dogs. 
He's like the Mr. I'm going to find out which Mr. Color he is. I always forget which one it is off the top of my head. He's Mr. Blue. He's like the only guy when you watch Reservoir Dogs and you're like, who the hell is that guy? Like, because everyone else is a recognizable um, actor. He's like Mr. Blue and, and he's adding that like level of authenticity to everything that's happening. And so, yeah, he's... No Be So Fierce, a seminal crime novel, hugely popular, came even to Australia, I hear. I've heard from a real, like, avid, you know, cinephile and, and, and just a voracious reading friend of mine, an older friend of mine who was like, he bought, apparently bought Eddie Bunker's book on a, like, a crime, in a crime bookstore that used to be in Glebe um, when it first came out. Like, he got his hands on it and he said it was amazing. Um, and... This is the great IMDb trivia that, like, I don't actually know if it exists, but it's amazing if it did. Apparently, he met Danny Trejo in Folsom Prison in the late 1970s. Whoa. And they became mates, and that's part of the reason why Trejo got a gig in Heat, is because they knew each other. That's that is incredible. Yeah. So yeah, like the the basis, and that's and that's what I mean about John Voight talking when he said, "You when he was read, you know, he he he'd known about Ed, Edward like Eddie Bunker or Edward Bunker, um, is his name, um, uh, and he's like, uh, he he's reading this thing about this part, this guy who knows fences in and out, and you know knows the criminal underworld and does all these jobs, and he's like, why don't you just get this guy to play him? And even Void, if you look at Edward Bunker, like the moustache and sort of the long mullety hair at the time, like that's Eddie Bunker's look, and so Void's mm. even sort of adopting the look and looking a bit like, you know, not characteristically beautiful, striking, handsome John Void. He's kind of got a bit of miles on him. That's that's Edward Bunker's look. So yeah, really. Really interesting. He's just like, no, nah, no, nah, he's got to be the guy. You've got, you've got to yeah. be my man. And even just googling, like, if you just pop in, like, John Voight, Heat, like, one of the most common questions that pops up that they try to answer is, is, is John Voight's character and Heat based on a real person? So even like for years, people have been popping that into a search engine, yeah, and trying to find out if this is a real guy. Um, because I guess people are just so fascinated by how much authority he kind of wields in the film. And, you know, he's this kind of like this wise, like you mentioned, kind of person that's always like giving the advice and you kind of listening to see if anyone's going to take it or, or, or what kind of like also reading between the lines in that weird way that I guess in Heat all the criminals are kind of always talking in code mm. or they're always talking in ways that it's like if you're, if you're on the right frequency of these people, you'll be understanding what they're talking about. And so throughout the film, kind of, you know, Nate is like that. It's, he's kind of like talking to these characters in like, you know, kind of code. And if they don't get it, it's like almost life and death. It's like, this is what I'm telling you. Um, and also, I guess a lot of it feeds into, I guess, the fact that these guys assume that they're always <laughs> under surveillance. So they're always kind of talking code and they're always like having really boring mundane conversations <laughs> about like really intense things because they just never know who could be listening or who's ready to betray who or whatever so um yeah like that's why i think that like you mentioned that that devastating line of it's a free country is that's just that's kind of like putting the biggest full stop ever on the entire relationship in terms of just saying like hey i'm no longer going to kind of engage in i'm no longer kind of going to engage in talking about this at all um which is really fascinating because 
that that line very much could have come across as like a cliche or something in, in any other film because it's such an easy way out of an argument, such an easy way to kind of like when you're talking to someone go, hey, it's a free country. It's and a free country. Just, yeah, you I go, think, well, that person's an idiot. <laughs> I think the the grace, like, and I, and I mean like the 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 performer, the grace of a performer to deliver a what seems like a cliche line and make it really fresh and cool is like is everything, especially with an yeah. older performer. And I just think you're right about that. Like the most cliche BS line, it's a free country. Like it's a free country, man. Like how many times have you seen that in like badly written TV or a badly written movie and him saying it, it's a free country, brother. Like it's, it just hits you like a ton of bricks. It's, it's so perfect. And this is the other thing is he kind of preempts something and it's something that I know that, you and I maybe have talked about it, about it in in the context of like James Bond is like the 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 um, projections of like high fi um, high fi you know um, uh, high technical um, you know gadgets and whatnot in like the James Bond universe and then it goes to low fi like where they they only want to have conversations they only want to use a radio it only wants to be a gun and they make jokes about exploding pens you know there's that whole thing and like in heat and in particular in this scene it's like this information in modern movies would be delivered in a text message via yeah. a secure phone or a burner or, you know, something thing. And I just love some of the, some of the continued intimacy of like, Nate has done all this stuff where he's like, used a landline to figure the shit out, book people in, but he doesn't really want to distill that information to anyone except face to face with Neil because he doesn't yeah. want any potential that if they're tracking him, that he's going to get caught. So it's like this cool, like little detail of like, why does this scene exist? It goes to reinforce what you were saying before about why is this scene still in the movie? And one mm. of the big things is like from a real pure, like surveillance state and the, the evolution of the surveillance state perspective, it's like if he's face to face with him, just having a really quiet and intimate conversation with him and they're at the back of his bar and they know that that's not under surveillance, then you're all good. Whereas, like, mm. having it in, like, somewhere else potentially or a new scene where someone could be following him or whatever, they control this little this little turn. So, you see them having this really open and candid conversation. But to your point as well, um, the reaction shot of De Niro here, you started to, we sort of started to dive into it before you went back to John Voight as Nate. The reaction shot from when he's like, where's Chris? He's like, he's gone. He's the the double take look that and it's I've just paused it for Cam and I to watch while we're here talking to you guys. It's thirty seven seconds into this minute. He's just so puzzled. He's got this like hurt and puzzled face. Like what? Like he's gone. <laughs> it's just it, it's paired with that, and then Voight delivers the magic. Yeah, and you just watch him. What happened? It's a free country, brother. So good. It's like, what do you mean? Like, what happened? What do you want me to do? I'm not going to keep him here. Like, he's a guy who's all blown up to pieces. What happened? 48 seconds. Man, Voight's eyes in this scene right now are just, like, looking through him. Like, it's so great. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's amazing. And, you know, and I think the whole presence of Voight in this film only hit harder upon revisitation in putting his career in context at the time. Yes. So, uh, so much of his appearance in this film, I think people would have just been like, 
John Voight, he's back. Where has he been? <laughs> Where has he been? Um, right. And, and yeah, you know, like in the, in the mid-90s, you couldn't really easily kind of dig up, unless you were like kind of a, a walking, talking like movie nerd. You couldn't really readily pull up that information that quickly. You kind of had to kind of no, just you assume the that. the yearly he, Leonard Martin like movie yeah. encyclopedia. <laughs> Like that, I'm sure exactly. both of us owned at some point in our young lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was no yeah, IMDb exactly. in so, freaking early 90s to look up what other movies John Voight had done. You're like, oh, okay. And it's like, you know, yeah. you, you, maybe an older sibling or your dad or an uncle goes, oh, have you seen Midnight Cowboy? Like that's, or Deliverance. Like they're the movies that yeah. are immediately pop off the top of people's head or the champ. It's maybe still in the video store when you went to God Heat. So, yeah, it's... um. Yeah, him emerging here, it's, like, so cool. Yeah, and also, like, if you want to even put more pressure on this performance, it's kind of like, you know, Voight, don't mess this up because this <laughs> is your ticket back. Yeah. Um, this is your ticket back into, like, some kind of, like, uh, relevance. But he, but he um, carries, you know, this is the funny thing about Voight, right? And, you know, like, just reflecting on he sort of goes into the wilderness, you know, by choice or by publicity stunt, unfortunately, you know, recently. And you look at now and I think there's a genius in whether it was man, obviously man himself wanted to work with him and like his casting director, Bonnie Timmerman, who'd cast this whole movie. There's like a an aura of like amazing that comes with John Voight, especially in the 90s. Like you think about those actors, like that trio of performance, like even that duo of performances, like going from Midnight Cowboy to Deliverance, like those movies are such, like, seminal moment movies, both instant classics, and you know that at the time that they're made, De Niro is, like, that's, like, De Niro's early career. Like, he hasn't, Mm. you know, he's only just sort of starting out, 72. Like, De Niro's biggest movies, you know, comes around then, but he's the young up-and-comer, whereas, you know, Voight's already, like, a full-blown movie star by 69, so, like, he's in the game. He's in that, like, top-tier generation, like, a little bit ahead of these guys. Um, so, he's kind of got that weird mix of, like, pure classic movie star, you know, but he's but also in the contempt, you know, his contemporaries are, you know, contemporaries with some of um, De Niro's generation in Hoffman, et cetera, but not, like, in it. He's just, yeah, like, that yeah. one step ahead of it. Yeah, I always kind of view John Voight as just, like, the alt... Robert Redford, like mm, it's the that's same. A good, that's a good point. Yeah, really good point. It's, it's like, like if you want to kind of look back at like, ho- like ho- what Hollywood movie stars were kind of at the time, you know, like once Redford arrived and it was like, well, you know, it was all about the blonde hair and kind of like the handsome kind of good looks. Like Voight is kind of like the old Redford, but he's doing films that are just a little, a little more edgier in a mm. way that like it's just all the stuff that Redford probably said no to um because yeah. i think it, you know if you go back and read any kind of books that cover like hollywood throughout the 60s and 70s you cannot read any of these like history books without hitting a story where like redford is just like in the mix doing things yes um and something that, jumps out, <laughs> something that jumps out to be a lot is you know just how much power he wielded at the time and you know, like he's a, you know, nearly every major project that was being developed at the time, it was like number one pick to star in this Robert Redford, Redford. like every single time. Superman. And like even, 
Yeah, everything. Mm. Like even if even if you go and read like um, some of the William Goldman books and like any you know anything that kind of is telling these true tales of Hollywood, it's always just like oh, it's like we came up with this idea and then Rob, Robert Redford really wanted to do it and then he didn't want to do it. Like there, he's just in the mix with everything, which makes you remember that you know he was such a huge star. Um, and so then when someone like John Foyt comes along, you know if you couldn't get Redford. Then you've got someone like Voigt, who's kind of a bit of a very similar look, but I'd say kind of, you know, a bit of a rounder face and a bit more kind of like a kind of like, I guess, kind of like country, country kind of huckster kind of vibe to him, yes. which I think pretty much comes from Midnight Cowboy. Um, but you know yeah, what's sad? You know what's devastating though? We're here talking about Deliverance, where he's like the opposite of a country guy. He's a complete yeah. city slicker. And you talk about Midnight Cowboy, where he sort of embodies that like, you know, you know, thick middle American strapping big dude. Yeah, fresh off the bus. Fresh off the bus. All, all those things. And IMDb just spits in our face and says, like, he's an actor known for Anaconda first. Like, this weird, stupid movie. And then it's like Midnight Cowboy second and then Transformers third. And you're like, Jesus Christ, I hate you, IMDb. Whoever wrote that blurb is just like, no, stop. You need to stop right now. Wake up to yourself tonight. Midnight Cowboy and Deliverance first and then like the champ and then nothing else. Yeah, it's pretty nuts. But I mean, I guess you can now, I guess he can probably be properly acknowledged now as like that second emergence of John Voight um, after, you know, his, his kind of peak period and then his like resurgence in the 90s. But yeah, you can definitely... You can definitely start it at Seinfeld and then move through to Heat and then everything else is just, yeah, his phone ringing again and saying, John Voight, John Voight definitely. in Heat. Come do 10 other things. Yeah, and by the looks of it, he'd like to work. And I think then, yeah, it all kind of fell apart pretty quickly. But, um, yeah, there's there's that really great period of of him kind of appearing in Heat and having this performance, um, which – which I think now, whenever, like I, like I said before, whenever you see this fence-type character in a film, um, because so many filmmakers reference Heat as their favourite when, when they're kind of doing press for whatever action flick they're rolling out. Even so, oh, we, we yeah. wanted it to be Heat. Ron Howard, why did you do that? No, you didn't just say that, Ron Howard. Oh, it is look. It is a. I am. I live on the hill of Solo, where I enjoy my time enjoying that movie. Um, and I have to say, the highest elements of it are very good um, when it comes to what he was trying to achieve there. But yeah, I, I think anyone comparing their film to Heat is insane anyway. So Just don't stop. even go. Just that's, that's the first thing I thought is like, why did you do that? That's like a mistake. You know it's a mistake. Do you know what you could make you can make the best crime heist thriller ever, ever, right? And if you say in an interview before I go into the movie, I was really inspired by Heat. The whole time through your movie, I'm just going to be thinking about Heat. I'm just going to be like, <laughs> yes. Man, how good is how good is Heat? Did you know there's a guy that does a podcast that breaks it down minute by minute? That's how good that movie is. And then I'm like, oh, by the way, I'm supposed to be watching this movie that's supposed to be like Heat, but I can't stop thinking about it. How good Heat is. Oh, uh, man, when it, I get home, I'm going to watch Heat. And I've then had... you leave the theatre and you go, what movie did I just see? Because I couldn't stop thinking about Heat. <laughs> I literally had that reaction. I was like, no, why did you do that? I'm going to be watching going, what about this movie did you think was Heat-like? And then I'm going to dislike yeah. it even more. I'm going to be like, even if I didn't like the movie or if I loved it, I'm like, 
where, you know, what were you doing? Oh, look. Um, you know what we need to do? We need to get over to the Macquarie Dictionary and the Oxford and all those different dictionaries <laughs> and say, hey, we've got a new thing for you. It's called heat blocking. It's when somebody says their film is like heat and it ruins that movie because you're thinking about heat. 100%. 100%. It's called Den of Thieves. 100%. <laughs> That movie is a hot garbage. And if you're listening to this episode, you would have already heard that the amazing Katie Walsh, um, so who, who, uh, you know, renowned film reviewer, legend who did this show, and I did a special Den of Thieves bonus episode um, just breaking down the movie. So if you guys want to go back and listen to that, um, you can hear all of my thoughts. Um, The movie actually hurt me to watch it. It was so bad. It was absolutely the most awful thing ever. It was like having... Um, it was like having a testosterone and steroid shot that you know was out of M- Mickey Rourke's bag from the wrestler shot up the eye of my dick while I was watching that movie. Like it was just the worst possible pain one could imagine <laughs> watching that Jesus. garbage fire. And Cam, if you haven't Jared, seen it, if you haven't seen it, I haven't seen it. Don't. I haven't seen it, but it does have Jared. It's Jared Butler, oh right? My God, yes, it's Jared Butler. Right. It's like it's it's. You, the John Voight actually, of action. No, I want you to watch it. I want you to watch it. I really want someone like you who has fun has fun poking fun at bad movies. Like, just you just have to tell me when you're live tweeting it, and I'll check it out. And we all can follow along because I, I I mean it's that bad that I think um, this watching this you watching you watch it. <laughs> okay, I'll give you a, I'll give you a sneak preview. It'll be this. It'll be like I'm finally doing it. I'm watching Den of Thieves. That's the first tweet. The <laughs> second tweet will be, man, how good is he? <laughs> end thread. <laughs> That's it. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the end of my thread. Watching Ten of Thieves. But yeah, no, it's... Um, hashtag, hashtag heat. Oh, uh, look, I think heat, I think heat blocking is amazing. I'm ta- I'm ta- that is That has to be done. Yeah, just don't talk about it. Just don't talk about it. It would Seriously, be... I'm I'll, trying to think of what other movies it would... It, it is almost like... Um, Dude, I, I reckon you get heat block like some of the best modern action films, like something like The Dark Knight. If you went into that and someone said, "Apparently, it's inspired by heat," you oh, would it's a different just, movie. You can't watch it. You can't concentrate. It's no. just impossible. Yeah, it's like um, yeah, it's 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 like any time anyone puts anything up too high and says it's the best ever or whatever. But I think with heat in particular, it's just like don't even. Like even Stop. if you're the greatest maker of your time, don't even don't even mention it. And if you're gonna mention it, wait at least ten years until after your film has come out, when the anniversary piece is rolling out, then you can say, Hey, guys. I really loved Heat. Heat. <laughs> really loved it. I really loved it and I was inspired I used to watch Heat before I did it. I think that that's um that's kind of the there's like two ways to do it and it's like so uh, the the only other film I could really think of that I have that immediate um, recall action, you know, that needs a blocking is like Godfather. Because if anyone made a gangster movie, you know, basically from the seventies all the way to nineteen ninety, because Goodfellas was like a new leaf um, on on yeah, new on, en- new en- a new energy, a new en- a completely different energy um, that that sort of overcame like a lot of the baggage that had happened because people were just trying, like so intimidated and in awe of the Godfather, they were just trying to make these, you know, these ciphers of it and they were just all ghastly. And so I, and then you get to something like the Sopranos where that's in the consciousness and they just run straight towards it. 
like they just run straight towards that like the godfather like they the guys do the quotes and they talk all the shit and you know they they talk about what they would have done or not done and it's just in their lives it's in the lexicon of the show so it's like there's you, but exactly to your point you have to do it with enough distance that it's just gone um otherwise you, you otherwise you can't do it but like yeah there's just you just shouldn't do it and and i think spielberg does it right too where he says before he watches before he goes on any project he watches the same you know, a couple of David Lean movies. He'll watch like a launch of Arabia, Bridge Over the River Choir, yeah. and and something. He watches something else. I don't know if it's like The Searchers or even Scorsese says he usually watches the Scorch, um, The Searchers before he starts any movie. Um, um, but yeah. yeah, he's like, there's sort of a, a few that like they just say I watch this movie all the time because it inspires me, but they don't like say that how that's yeah. specifically going to impact the way that they're undertaking it. Trying to think of a film that recent, like a, a recent interview. The real like it, like anything that you read before a film that just really annoyed me in terms of like putting <laughs> a film in context. I think I think of any I think the directors that do it the worst. And this is a public service announcement if you're making a horror film in the next twelve months <laughs> to not do this, which is to to contextualize your horror film by just referencing like six horror films. Yes, um, and but then. Each one is so eclectic that it just blows everybody's mind. So you go, oh, it's kind of like Rosemary's Baby and A Nightmare on Elm Street and Get Out and uh, Night of the Living Dead. And and then oh, it's just so painful. So, yeah, but I think of all the films to do it with the worst, I think it is. it definitely is heat because it just smothers whatever people are trying to achieve. So it it's one of those very rare films that lives in that territory where even just a mere mention of it will just kills will kill, a- kills yeah. many movies kills many movies i would have and i'm and i'm so glad like um you know i did a i did a podcast with the guys from the cinephiles you know about i think it's around 60 episodes back a couple of them um and at the time one of the hosts josh um had never heard about the dark knight heat thing and just said that the next time that he'd watched he obviously watching heat in preparation for the show he then went back and watched the dark knight and he just he was completely changed forever he was like i can't watch the dark knight anymore it's just heat. Josh. i just i just sit there going like you know drawing the dots and going like oh my god this is just this is just heat it's just heat and heat and heat, heat. congratulations buddy you got heat blocked <laughs> oh you're heat blocked that's good I like heat blocks. We're gonna that. I think this episode might have a subtitle. One of the first ever called heat blocks. I think that's what it. That's what it needs. Um, but yeah, no. This is it's it's you, you're getting heat blocks so hard if if you if you say it. If, if any director, just stop. Just don't say it. I don't care if you watched every frame of heat to like inspire you much like Ryan Johnson did with brick and like he watched, you know, Maltese Falcon and stuff like that. And, you know, incorporated and, and, and sort of like did Maltese Falcon through the, you know, the lens of a you know, middle American high school. Like that's totally, that's okay. Like you can, you can talk about that after it's released, but you can't ever say heat first. You can't, it's over. Yeah. Heat. Yeah. Heat. Don't heat first. Never heat first. <laughs> um, it's one of those things. But hey, um, the only other thing that I jumped out at me at this scene is: is it just me, or is the plan to get Macaulay out of the country more complex than anything they've done in this film? <laughs> 
well, this is the thing. I think all of Neil's plans are really complex. And like John Voight is in this scene when he's saying it, it's like, I had to kill this. I had to kill this. We've called this guy. We've called this. And you're like, you're just like, yes, I sometimes like complex, you know, you, you being a film fan, like and you and I watch a lot of movies and lots of TV shows. And sometimes the oversimplification, like, and I think of like, it's like the Jason Bourne thing where like he walks up to a motorbike and he like just taps it once and it starts. And you're like, yeah. how did that start? Like, how, how did you do that? Like, yeah. and, and, and for me, I, I sometimes like when things are done in, over in detail. Um, the comedian Tony Martin always talks about that same phenomena and he talks about it being really great in Midnight Run. Another movie with Robert De Niro mm. where, and Charles Gordon, an incredible buddy cop. Oh, sorry, uh, buddy comedy, I shouldn't say. Not buddy cop comedy, but it's a buddy comedy on the run. Um, and um, De Niro steals a car in that movie and, like, he, you know, breaks open where the ignition is and he does a few things and pulls this down and gets this wire and it sparks like spark. And it's one of those rare examples where you're like, oh, I'm actually watching him do what someone would have to do to steal this car. And so yep. um, I kind of like it in this moment because it's like, you know, where... I need to tell you about the plane. I need to tell you about the call sign. I need to tell you about this. I need to tell you about that. And you can sort of see De Niro frantically like, all right, taking a few notes or whatever he's doing on a piece of paper. Um, just like, yep, yep, yep. Logging all this down. I need to know. But it's like, yeah, of course, Neil's, Neil's plans are all in detail. You know, he's, he's there the you know night what? before taking it all out. Do you know what De Niro does in this scene? He does that thing that I'm always in awe of at uh, waiters at restaurants where they remember <laughs> your order without writing it down because it's so complex. Like I was actually thinking of because there's a bit in the plan where he the plane will only wait for a certain amount of time and I'm just like planes can't just be waiting out on tarmac. They have to be either moving or taking um, off. Otherwise, they're going to smash into each other. So that, I, oh, that's, that's what so I got. I, like for the first time ever. How much fear again, do you have? When they when they're doing it, I have a lot. It gives me lots of anxiety. I'm just like, can you fucking please write this down? Like, even if it's yeah, not that complicated, my coffee order is pretty complicated. Sometimes I'm like, hey, can I have a long black with a dollop of cream, like real cream, not milk? And they're like, yep. And I'm like, cool. I guess I'm getting a flat white because that's definitely not that's you remembering. Gonna happen, man. <laughs> that's what's gonna happen. Yeah, maybe everyone in heat. That, that maybe at least they like, and we do know that there's a heat prequel coming out. Maybe that prequel would just be like them all working in the service industry and like <laughs> how they develop like s- super memories to remember all these complex plans by like working at a restaurant together and like just being kick-ass waiters at remembering things. Um, but yeah, that I want to see. Plan, I want to see. Right, like, hold on one second. I think he's writing he write, it down. Does he write anything down? I think he is. Like, so if we're looking at, if you're at 19 seconds, oh wait. I think you can he's freeze frame. No, I think we can freeze frame. I think you're going to see that he's writing it down. So just as Neil whips around from Nate when he spots the car, he's he's writing on an envelope. There's a manila envelope right. in his hand. And so it's either written down for him or he's writing it down. And so here, see, there's like he lifts his hands up slowly, he turns around, and then he goes back. And that's when he's when Nate's talking now. He's looking at him and he's, uh, he looks he's like he, he is writing it down. So it's not... He is writing it down. De- God we've, damn it. With Eddie debunked your theory that he's um that that, he, that he's just remembering it. Because, yeah, his memory would be too good. But no, that does give me anxiety. I'm really being serious right now. <laughs> just was, please write things down. 
I was really looking forward to that restaurant pericle where they're all in a thing together. <laughs> well, look, Reed Coleman and Michael Mann are the authors of the Heat prequel. We don't know what it's called yet, other than it's called the Heat prequel, and it's being released by Michael Mann Books sometime later in the year. So you guys listening to this in March, apparently, you know, July, August, American summertime. So we're in the fall, a little bit after that. So um, um, September, etc. So, and you know, it, it, we're, we're going to find out. I, I mean, look, we might we might meet these two guys again in that prequel and figure out like just how awesome Nate is, or he might get, you know, get in the nitty gritty and watch Nate make some mistakes or watch Nate in a heist or something like that. We never know. Nate, Nate might get himself in some trouble and know some of these guys and, and expand this thing. Let's see. Let's see how they, let's see where they go with this bad boy. Yeah, that's definitely, I think Nate definitely is what, like if you were to say, Oh, you can only include three characters in this prequel. Who's got to appear. I think Nate definitely has, has to, to be in there in some has capacity. Yeah. And like, and also too, just like, see that character expand out a little bit more and spend more time with him and kind of figure out why he decides to go with the moustache and mullet combo. <laughs> um, I think that definitely needs to be explained. There's three chapters. There's three chapters just on the hair choice. Look, it's a strong it's a strong mullet mo game and so influential that it even influenced uh, Colin Farrell later on in Miami Vice and people are so distracted. I'm like, look, this is just Nate. It's just... He's just killing it with a Nate do. Like, what is everyone so yeah. stressed about? He's absolutely killing the he's, game right now. I mean, that's how you know his character is not to be messed with because <laughs> he's pulling off that look and nobody is questioning it. Um, that's not where even you, that's mention. You know. Yeah. I mean, Blake, it's free country, brother. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, Well, look, in that spirit, Cam Williams, thank you so much, mate, for being a part of One Heat Minute. Thank you for your support and encouragement at uh, minute 133. If we don't get to see you um, before this end run as we're ramping up to the, the final finish line, mate, thank you so much for being a part of the show and thank you for your huge contribution, 109 episodes, 110 episodes ago was your first episode that you are on it. So thank you so much for being here. So like, you know, again, you talk about it being the longest movie ever. It does. When I speak to you for the first time again, not in the world, but on this show, 110 episodes, 109 episodes, it's uh, it's pretty, it's pretty scary. It's a long time between heat minutes. I'll tell you that. So <laughs> it's a long yeah, time. I think that's going to become a thing now. It's going to become like people saying that uh, because your the ability for you to take this film and make people think even deeper about it one minute at a time is incredible. So even just the yeah, this watching this ep- this doing this episode and watching this scene, you know, again reminded me, you know, just what this podcast is doing and how it's making people think about films in general. So um, yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Mate, you're welcome. Guys, at Mr. Cam W is the best place to find Cam Williams. You can read sort of his uh, back catalog of stuff. He usually keeps it all like a resume on uh, his uh, classic, thepopcornjunkie.com. Uh, but you can see him and hear from him there, and he'll uh, bounce off uh, to a bunch of things. Um, Cam's currently, thank you, Cam, re- uh, recommended one heat minute on a great birth movie's death piece. And I, th- I see that he's back um, talking about Finding Drago, um, which uh, I, I hadn't heard of until I was scouring his Twitter very recently. So I'm like insanely um, excited about that prospect of that podcast, the serial for yeah, Rocky fans. So Finding Drago yeah, looks yeah, like my next one. Yeah, look, look if, if you end up listening to Finding Drago and you can find out a way to get Todd Noy on the show to talk about heat, I will. That will probably be the most listened to podcast of all time. <laughs> so I definitely think you it's know, 
That's... Yeah, it's such a, an author of noise. Uh, I mean, I'm just getting emotional thinking about it, but um, yeah, to have Noi on Heat would be incredible. So um, yeah, I highly recommend tracking down that podcast uh, if, if you've got the time. It's only like seven episodes, so you can easily knock it over. Uh, that That is 100% done. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you again for listening to One Heat Minute. I've been your host, Blake Howard. Thank you to Mr. Garth Franklin for our web design, Mr. Paul Davies for our awesome theme, and as always, thank you. Everyone who's subscribed and rated and reviewed and uh, commented and, and, and flicked us notes on Twitter or from our um, uh, from our inbox at mail at oneheatminute.com, thank you. Keep doing that. Can't wait to keep reading them. And um, and periodically, as I did recently with um, uh, uh, the most recent one I did with Oscar Hillstrom, um, did a bit of a mailbag um, for One Heat minute before we kicked off uh, the minute so as more stuff piles in I definitely do um, read it and I'm keen to share it with everyone because it's just some great stuff that you guys have been hitting me up with mail at oneheatminute.com for everything else um, and look we'll catch you on another episode of One Heat Minute just around the corner remember it's a free country When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.